Hello, welcome to Rounding the Earth. I'm your host, Matthew Crawford, and today we've got a little bit of a different format. Um, somebody I know had uh, talked to me about uh, what seemed like a very reasonable theory of what's actually going on with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, as in, as in who is it who actually gets most sick from COVID-19? And uh, we're going to talk about that today. But first, I'm going to bring in, uh, we've kind of got a uh, co-host today, a guest co-host. So uh, Jessica Rose is going to be joining us for this conversation, particularly because she's a bit more biologist than I am, me not being a biologist. So uh, it, it'll be uh, better to have her here to be able to, to discuss uh, these ideas and ask questions. So uh, now I'm going to bring in today's guest, who is uh, Cody Porter, and I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, Cody. Hi. Yeah, like Matthew said, my name's Cody Porter, and uh, Matthew and I have uh, known each other, worked together, uh, been friends for about a year now, a little over a year now, and uh, I'm excited to be here and talk about some ideas that I've had on why I think uh, the spike protein causes damage and what way it causes damage. So you, you, you are talking about the spike protein in particular? Right. Okay. So this is going to be I'm going to talk about the spike protein and how to separate the damage that's caused by the spike protein from anything else that might be COVID related. And um, hopefully we can get into the details on that. Okay. Um, do you want me to bring up your slides now or do you want to let me know when it's... I'll let you know when. Okay. Yeah, that, that won't be necessary until um, we get through the first parts. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm going to let you take over. Um, you know, state your, your ideas for the audience. And, uh, and I guess we'll go from there. Right. So I just want to say ahead of time that um, if you have questions at any point, you know, sometimes when I give talks, I want to wait till the end. But now just interrupt me. I want it to be more of a discussion so we can actually have a conversation here. I think that'll be more interesting for the audience than well, you had waiting a, until the end. You had an observation. Uh, maybe that's the best place to start. You made an observation about um comorbidities like what what the list of the top nine of them were and mm. a relationship between them yeah we can start there that's fine uh there's two major background sections we want to get to both of them but it doesn't have to be in any particular order um but right when i think it was last summer sometime whenever the cdc released their uh list of of comorbidities, they had a, um, a they had a table which showed the comorbidities which most highly uh, correlated with a poor outcome. That's death. That's hospitalization. That's um, ICU. And I I happened to notice that there was a common factor between there was a plausible common factor between all of them, and there was one that I knew that there was plenty of research that had been done on that same common factor for most of them. So most of them I can connect in one way or another to this common factor. This doesn't mean that it's necessarily the common factor, but it's very, very interesting at the time. And that's sort of what started me on the journey. Um, and the common factor, well, so let's talk about the, the comorbidities. So the comorbidities that was discussed in this paper, and I, I wanted to use the CDC's paper because, uh, well, I wanted, to talk about it in a way that was harder to get away from. You know, somebody could say, oh, well, these comorbidities, this is from the CDC. If you're looking for an authoritative source, like this is what that's supposed to be. Uh, but if you were to look, the table showed diabetes, 
cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, uh, heart disease, uh, all the heart diseases. And it, down the list, you go through this and there's one pathway, right? That has, that's common in, in all of these. And that's the age rage pathway. And so age advanced glycation end products. That's a, an umbrella term for a class of molecules. And these are any molecules as can be a, a protein, a sugar, or sorry, a protein, a fat or a nucleic acid. And these molecules are just normally found in your body, but what makes them an age, what makes them advanced glycation end product is that they've, they've um, interacted with sugars in your blood and your body and they've interacted with sugar. So sugar will come and it's floating and it gloms onto this protein. It gloms onto this fat, this nucleic acid, and it will sometimes just fall off. But what makes something an age is the fact that it's, it's had so many interactions with sugars. It's so far mutated and transfigurated that it can't do its normal function anymore. It can't go back to how it used to be. There's no falling off. It's, it's been completely modified by this high concentration of sugar in the blood. And so when you study something like this, you usually look at something like diabetic humans or diabetic model of, of animal because diabetics, type two diabetics have high blood sugar. And so this, this occurrence that happens in everybody happens at a much higher rate than somebody with diabetics. So if I were to drink, if I were to drink a soda, if I were to drink a Coke, right? Some ages would be formed in my body because for that little bit while the sugar is being processed, I have a very high blood sugar. But if I were diabetic, right, I, I'm every day, the whole day with a high blood sugar. And so the rate of formation of these ages is much stronger. Um, and so the, it's a common factor because these have been studied very thoroughly in heart disease and neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and so when I saw it, the first thing that came to my mind was like, these are all, or almost all age related diseases. And the ones that aren't, I can find I can think of plausible ways where they might be associated. Now, whether they are or not, we'd have to do more research. But um, that was my first observation when I looked at the data. Matthew, I don't know if you're saying something to me, you're muted. Thank you. Um, I, I'm going to jump in and say one thing real quick because um, I, I got a private notification uh, talking about other comorbidities. But uh, one thing I want to point out is um, when you see different studies on comorbidities, they might be listed differently. Some of those might be comorbidities um, that relate to like post-disease progression, like pneumonia or something like that, um, or renal failure. Um, but if, if you you know wipe away the things that might be going on during the disease progression and look prior to that, then right. that's where you get this list that Cody's talking about. You know, what what condition was a human being in prior? And it turns out that there is this this age rage um, uh, pathway that that is related to a whole bunch of these all at once. And uh, and this is a this is a pretty good reason to uh, assess your own health too, and ask um, you know what what is it that I can do not to be as affected by this disease? And and you know it, it's a good reason to to eat and exercise well. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah. So this is something that, and, and if you remember from the CDC report, I mean, I'm sure you all read it. Uh, Chris Martinson, he did a, um, he did a, a program on it where he went into detail. Uh, a lot of the things that they were talking about in it was that people who had multiple of these comorbidities had the worst outcomes and people who had none of them, even if they were old, like very old, they had uh, about the same level of poor outcomes as somebody who was younger. And so 
it seemed very much from this particular study at the time that there was a strong correlation between comorbidity and poor outcome from COVID-19. Uh, and so I thought that was very interesting. And I, and I wanted to look into that further. But before we go further down this particular path, um, I want to talk about a second path. So there are two paths here. They're going to intersect as the, as the, the culmination of the story of the hypothesis. And so the, that's the first path is the age rage. And the second path is going to talk about how to, um, how we've looked at what aspects of COVID-19 are related to the spike protein and how that seems to function. So as far as what aspects are related to COVID-19 of the spike protein, whenever you have a disease, right, aspects of that disease can come from the virus, can come from like the action of the virus, can come from the proteins of the virus. It's, it's, it's not always clear exactly what comes from what. And so I think it's very interesting and informative to look at the different studies that were done, especially in light of how the vaccines work. So uh, the studies that were done that looked at just the effect of the spike protein. For instance, there was um, Lou et al, I think, uh, was the paper in circulation, sorry, it was Lay et al, the paper in circulation research that came out in 2021. Uh, that showed that they used a pseudovirus, uh, which is a, a virus that is non-replicating, but has spike proteins expressed on its shell. And they infected uh, hamsters with this. And so this would have none of the interior aspects of COVID-19, but it would have just the spike protein. And what they saw when they infected the hamsters with this versus a mock virus was they saw that the, uh, the air sacs, the alveolar sacs in the lungs were were shrunken, they were smaller, so there was less room for air exchange. They saw the, the walls that house these sacs were thickened. They saw uh, an increase of in, uh, immune cells that had infiltrated. These are all signs of, of infection of, of immune response. And so what you get in this scenario is that this is a virus that has none of the other aspects of COVID-19, has only the spike protein, and it's having this strong inflammatory immune response inside of the lungs of these hamster cells. And uh, furthermore, we can see that uh, there was another study which looked at adding just the S1 protein. So this was in a cell culture. And in this case, they added just this S1 protein and they saw a dose-dependent relationship with the pro-inflammatory cytokines, the different markers and signals that signal inflammation uh, in this cell culture. And so the question is, is, is there a reasonable pathway by which we can expect the spike protein to cause this inflammation outside of the fact that it's a virus, right? Outside of the activity of the virus, how would the spike protein by itself cause this damage? And I think that, uh, I think it's clear that there is a mechanism for this and it intersects with the age-rage pathway that we're gonna get to. Um, so first, let's do a little bit of background here. So we know that SARS-CoV-2, one of the earliest things we learned is that SARS-CoV-2 infiltrated cells, one of the ways is by using the ACE2 receptor. So it binds to the ACE2 receptor and gets taken up into the cell. What the studies have shown is that actually this, the action of the spike protein causes a downregulation, causes a downregulation. It means that by some mechanism, the availability of, of in this case, ACE2 
to be bound to be used is reduced. So it's no longer there on the surface to be used. Uh, so the binding of ACE2 by the spike protein causes a downregulation of ACE2. So not only is it in the way and blocking it from being used in that moment, but it actually is less available on the cell surface to be used. And so we all have heard that, but the question is, is why does this really matter? What's the big deal, essentially? And the big deal is that ACE2 has its own job in the body. Um, its job is to is to work on a, on a series of pathways called the uh, renin-angiotensin system. The renin-angiotensin system is a body-wide pathway that's used for regulating blood pressure. So there are two different major aspects. One is a constriction, a constriction aspect, an inflammation aspect, where if your blood pressure was too low, for example, your veins, vessels would constrict and increase the pressure. Another is a relaxation, where if it were too high, for example, it would relax and cause a reduction of inflammation, a dilation. So this is a dysregulation that could manifest in different ways among different people, which is why you might have a different one of these set of comorbidities triggered? Yeah, that's right. I think importantly, it's that it has, it has effects all over the body. And so it's something that we really need to keep in mind because you hear people say things like COVID-19, the disease uh, can have effects and people will say things like, I don't understand why it can have this effect here and this effect here. You know, we look at the different adverse events that occur and people will say, I don't understand how it can have this kind of effect and that kind of effect. And so one thing that I wanna to tie together is that by working through the mechanisms I'm going to be describing today, this, uh, this effect could occur different ways in different people all over the body. And so I want to make it clear that uh, at the end, once we get through the mechanism, I want to talk about predictions and what you might expect if this were occurring. And at that point, I'd like to go into detail on you know, what could you predict based off of this information. But um, so let's let's add some some names here for people who are taking notes. And I want to say now, I forgot to say earlier, that I'm, I'm writing up a Substack post in which I'll detail this. Technical difficulties, please hold. <laughs> uh, I'm writing up a Substack post in which I'll detail this for people who, you know, want more than just a discussion, people who want to look at the nitty gritty details. And that will be available. Um, I hope to have it ready by today, but maybe in the next couple of days it'll be available and I'll I'll make sure that you add it to the notes and maybe tweet it if you if you want to at that point um, <clears throat> let's add some names to these to these molecules so one that you need to know one part of the renin angiotensin system is is angiotensin angiotensin 1 right is a molecule that then is uh, so angiotensin, so let's talk about ACE. So ACE is the angiotensin converting enzyme, right? So it means it is an enzyme that converts angiotensin. There are two of these and there are, there are multiple angiotensins that, will, that are important to this story, but I'm only gonna kind of give the outline of the story here and we'll talk about two or three of them. So angiotensin one is acted upon by ACE one. 
and it turns it into angiotensin II. Angiotensin II is the constriction inflammation version in general. And then angiotensin II is acted upon by ACE2. And ACE2 on angiotensin turns it into the relaxation dilation version. So what happens is, is that if you have SARS-CoV-2 spike protein down-regulating the effects of ACE2, then angiotensin can't, the, the inflammation constriction molecule can't be turned down through its normal pathway into what's called angiotensin 1-7, uh, which was the, the dilation relaxation version. And so what happens is you get a buildup of the angiotensin 2, which is the constriction, uh, the inflammation version. And I guess I'll say here also that a lot of what I'm talking about is, is not theoretical, like it's known to occur, these very well-studied pathways. Um, I mean, even in, in, in medical school or, or grad school, early grad school, if you have a physiology class, maybe, maybe even a, a senior level physiology class in undergrad, you're gonna go into detail on this system. This is not an unknown system, this is a very well-known system. The actual question here is not, does it happen? For that, that's sure to be the case. The question is, how big of an effect does it have when it happens, right? So how much of what we see from COVID infection, how much of what we see from, uh, from vaccine injury is associated with this mechanism of action? And the, and the answer is, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how big it is, how much effect it has. Uh, and it's not really been specifically studied, at least not the mechanism that I'm going to be talking about today. Um, so let's get back into the details. So we have angiotensin 1, which ACE1 cuts to make angiotensin 2. Now, angiotensin 2 would normally be then cut to make angiotensin 1-7, which is the relaxation, uh, dilation version. But with SARS-CoV-2 infection or with spike protein down-regulating the ACE2 receptor, it can't go through its usual pathway for that. There are other pathways by which this could be related, but you know, the usual pathway is through the ACE2 receptor. And so that leaves it there, built up in a higher concentration for it to perform its, uh, its inflammation um, job. You know, it, it's supposed to do, it's there in the body, it's used all the time as regulatory uh, receptor for inflammation. We actually see this, you know, we've seen uh, studies that show downregulation of ACE2 after SARS-CoV-2 spike protein exposures. This is not infections, just the spike protein exposure. We see downregulation. And some of the early studies out of China I've seen show that there was a increase in, in uh, blood levels of angiotensin II after SARS-CoV-2 infection this correlated with the amount of virus in the body. So the virus, the more angiotensin II in the body. And also the more angiotensin II, the worse the, the breathing was. The, the, they used the partial pressure of oxygen and they used gas exchange. So the, the poorer the gas exchange was in these patients, the more the angiotensin II was. And so this has been, has been looked at as a mechanism, of course, by which it's not unknown that this is making some of inflammation, right? The question is, is how much of this is, how much, how 
bad is this? And then in which people is it so bad? Uh, one thing I want to say is that this is a kind of pathway that can get, uh, this is a pathway that can get, maybe we'll say out of hand, that can run away with itself. And a lot of diseases that we see, especially with old age or with poor lifestyle, are the diseases in which this has kind of gotten out of hand. So chronic kidney disease, high blood pressure, we see this a lot with heart disease. And where this disease is, this pathway has, even without the influence of SARS-CoV-2, has tended itself to be more and more pro-inflammatory. So people who eat a lot of sugar, for instance, um, people who, who eat an excessive amount of like, you know, um, uh, are, uh, synthetic carbohydrate, um, that's not the right word, processed carbohydrates and, and who, who just generally don't keep um, a good diet. Um, it, you've got kind of this, uh, this meter uh, with this system. And if it moves a little in one direction, your body kind of tries to do something to, you know, keep regulation in order to restore order. But if it gets pushed too far in some direction, then, then you just have like an overboard system going on. You have, you have a system that, that goes beyond the ability to regulate itself. So if, if we're that far along, pushing this system around that's supposed to regulate us. And then we get this, um, we get, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 infection, then it's, it's likely to be much, much worse is what you're saying. We're, we're likely to have more of this inflammation or th this is your, your model that you would like to explore. Right. Right. So, <clears throat> so this is, this is, this is half of it along with age rage and I'm going to connect them in just a minute. But so if you look at the effects of what are the effects of angiotensin 2, let's say that you, you do have a buildup even in, so this will happen over the course of a long time in those people who have um, very poor lifestyles, very poor diets, people who are overly obese or lack of uh, exercise. This will happen over the course of, of a period of time. But Another question would be, what if you get a, a quick shot of angiotensin 2? What if somebody were to, what if I were to dose you, right? What if I take a syringe and stab you and, and inject angiotensin 2 into your bloodstream? You know, how bad would that be? And the question, or the answer to that second part, how bad would it be, depends on how out of control the system is already. If the system is in control, if it's very, if you're very normal, then it would be not good for you, right? but it wouldn't necessarily be something that may push you over the limit that may kind of really just spiraling down. Or and if you're somebody people who, who have heard of, uh, if I can jump in for people who have heard of these, um, you know, cytokines, interleukins, you know, if, if you've read that name in, in uh, you know, an online article or something like that, these interleukins, um, these are, this is one of the pathways that results in, um, you know, some of these interleukins being sent out, there are, you know, multiple different interleukins that get emitted, you know, in, in other signaling systems in the body. But, uh, uh, but is this IL-7 and IL-1? Is that what we see? I think you're maybe thinking of IL-6, but uh, there, are, there are a lot of, of signaling cytokines and essentially half of them or part of them are anti-inflammatory signaling and part of them are pro-inflammatory signaling. But the, the, real, the real topic here is, is not necessarily particularly which ones are sent out. I mean, we see increased levels of things like TNF-alpha and, and so IL-1B usually is upstream of IL-6. So those, those kind of go together. 
um, I mean, you do see these pro-inflammatory effects of the of the spike protein or of activation of this pathway, right? So when you have the angiotensin, so it's the receptor that it binds to, the one we're going to talk about today, it binds to at least a couple, is the angiotensin 2 receptor 1, AT1R is how it's written. And so this angiotensin receptor, uh, once it binds to, once uh, angiotensin 2 binds to it, then we're talking about a whole slew of, of effects that are pro-inflammatory, that are pro-growth, pro-fibrosis, pro-collagen deposition. And you know these things all play a role in what we see as far as COVID-19 disease. In fact, there are studies that show that even adding just angiotensin II or just the precursors for it to, for instance, a mouse or rat lung, right? if you just get rat's lungs with the precursor for or the angiotensin II, we see uh, pulmonary fibrosis, which is like the scarring of the lungs just from, just from this molecule alone. So just this mechanism alone could explain some of the kind of uh, glass lung type phenobes that you see from COVID-19, uh, depending on how much you were to get from that. Um, and it's also part of the, and this in itself is part of the immune response, right? If you have um, mast cells or some granulocytes that are immune cells that release different molecules in order to signal inflammation, one of the things, some of the things they release are chymase and tryptase. And these two, uh, these two enzymes actually themselves will create angiotensin two from angiotensin one. So let's say you had lots of angiotensin one, they create localized angiotensin two spikes in order to increase inflammation in that area as part of this hey, there's a fire, come put it out uh, pathway. It's part of this pro-inflammatory pro uh, part of this pro-inflammatory pathway. Now I wanna connect this to what we talked about a minute ago, which was rage. And I think this is the point at which I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and put the slide I sent. Right. So what was discovered uh, this paper was published in 2020, although you know, I may have read the preprint for it in 2019. I'm not sure exactly when I saw this first. But what was published in 2020 here uh, by researchers called uh, Pickering et al. from Australia, they found out that actually RAGE dimerizes with angiotensin 1 receptor, angiotensin 2 receptor 1, AT1R. And so dimerizes means that they actually form together on the membrane of the cell. So on the outside layer of the cell, these two proteins will come together. And what's very interesting is that they transactivate each other. So if we're looking at this, we see blue is the angiotensin side, green is the rage side. And what we see is that angiotensin, or what we would see in the body, what, what this cartoon is supposed to show, what we would see is angiotensin would come in and bind to its receptor. The blue binds to the blue. But what would happen is you would get an activation of both blue and green from the binding of just the one. If the green comes in and binds, the ages bind to rage, then you would get a binding or you would get an uh, activation of both rage and angiotensin receptor. And so this is a mechanism by which Let's say that you are a normal healthy weight, you have very few ages, you still get age production, right? 
but you would not have not have the same amount of ages. You would not have the same amount of rage receptors even. Um, but let's say that you're in a more healthy rate, you would have much less of this interaction. So you would have very few ages. And so when angiotensin two comes in and binds to its receptor, you would get rage activation, but it would be much less than what you would get if you had something like, if you were diabetic or had heart disease or were obese or something like this, chronic kidney disease, you would have a bunch of ages too. And so those ages would come in bind to their receptor, and it would also cause both sides to activate. And so what I really want to express here is that this is a situation where somebody who was, was healthy would have a much lower level of activation, would have, this is something where if you had the right comorbidities, this kind of pathway could spiral quickly out of control. And so what we would expect to see is somebody who was dosed with a spike protein or would have a much higher level of angiotensin, which would then activate this angiotensin receptor and rage together. Ages would come in and activate rage and angiotensin together. And this, both of these are pro-inflammatory. And so you would see a huge increase in inflammation. Uh, that's, yeah. So what do you suppose this hasn't been uh, a research focus up to this point. Like this seems like a, a very, you know, uh, reasonable model to, you know, not only to discuss, but given how much, you know, how many thousands of papers and tens of thousands of scientists have focused on different aspects of COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, um, why wouldn't this be a, a research focus? And that's an excellent question. So, um, I think part of the reason is that this is not very well known. The fact that, so there are two papers on this, uh, this dimerization so far, this compared to dozens or hundreds of papers on just the age, uh, rage or just the angiotensin pathway. There are only two papers on the fact that these dimerize, this was discovered in, like I said, in 2020, <clears throat> excuse me. So this is not super widely known I spoke with a with a, an expert in this field, somebody who spent their life studying age rage, and they didn't know about the fact that these proteins dimerized. Uh, and this was in this was in 2021, so this is a year after the the first paper came out, and during the same year the second paper came out, and so it's not super widely known. Also, I think that um, actually, you know what, uh, I, I'm going to stop you there. Can you define dimerize for? The audience, because that's that's a word that I had to look up some number of months ago. Um, but I, for I'm sure, it just uh, just means that they come together and form a single complex. So they they just stick together, and we think, as far as I can tell, the uh, they actually form together here at this transmembrane section, which is the um, it's the part that's in between. So the this cartoon is meant to depict on the cell membrane, and so you see the yellow and uh, the yellow pieces of the membrane on the sides. This is the, the bubble that is around the cell. And then these two um, proteins that have, that are drawn here. So the lower part is the inside of the cell and the upper part is the outside of the cell. And so what happens when, a, when something like this happens, a, 
a ligand, or which means something that binds to the, the key for the lock that is the receptor. The receptors sit there and they're a lock and keys are floating around. The key comes in and clicks into the lock and causes it to activate. And so the keys, in this case, the angiotensin II and the ages are, are floating in the body and they will bind to their respective locks. And then once that happens, this is tr the signal is sent through the, through the receptor to the inside of the cell. It's how it communicates with its outside. And so uh, these transmembranes, the parts that go through the membrane, so it's the pieces that are through the membrane that Rage connects via its transmembrane domain with angiotensin receptor, uh, angiotensin two receptor one. And so they actually will bind and form together such that they share activation. So activation of one turns into actually activation of the other. Um, so dimerization just means that the two become one. So there's there's multiple. Uh, you can do a homodimer, which is like Rage does this, where a bunch of rages will form together into a clump, and they all work and act together. Uh, or you can have a heterodimer, which is what this is, which means two different things that bind together and and have an effect. So that's what this is in this case is a heterodimer. So, but your question was, why isn't it well studied? And uh, so another thing, uh, when I spoke to the expert on this, I asked them, uh, you know, do you think this is, how, how interesting do you think this pathway is? What do you think of the effect of this? And they seemed to, to dismiss it off the cuff, although I eventually convinced them that it was not something that they ought to dismiss. Uh, and the reason it was they dismissed it is because they said, oh, well, it probably won't have that big of a deal. And that's probably right in healthy people, which is the entire point, right? Probably in most people, it really wouldn't have that big of an inflammation effect. It would have some, you would, you would, you would notice some damage from it, but it would not have the same effect as if, what if you were diabetic with heart disease and chronic kidney failure? And then you suddenly got, so both these systems are already out of control in your body and you suddenly got a huge bump of one of them. It could put somebody over the edge. Now, one of the things I wanna talk about is what are, the, what are the effects of, what are the effects of this? What would you see? Let's say that, let's say angiotensin one receptor binds and the, the angiotensin two binds to it. What's downstream, what happens? We've already said inflammation, uh, fibrosis. You can see endothelial damage. That means damage to your blood vessels. This is studied, this mechanism is studied. Both of these are studied in heart disease, right? You see, um, you see heart scarring, you know, reduction of heart function, uh, heart inflammation in, in both of these. Um, but you can also get, because you have an increase in oxidative stress and radical oxygen species, right? You end up with DNA damage from the oxidative stress, which could lead to the beginnings of cancer. I mean, we've seen studies that show that activation of, of having just the spike protein, spike protein exposure leads to disformed and dysfunctional mitochondria. Um, but also you can get things like angiotensin receptor is involved in blood vessel growth, new blood vessel growth, neoangiogenesis. So if someone were to say, if someone were to say, um, you know, what are the possible things that you might expect if this were happening? You know, one of the things you could say is 
you would expect an increase in soft tissue cancers, cancers that were um, liable to be benefited by or reachable by new blood vessel growth. So let's say I've got an area, a cancer in my body where, you know, it's somewhere where blood vessels can form in and reach it. The cancer will grow based off of how much nutrients it gets, like what's available to it. It'll grow as fast as it has access to grow. And so if I were to take a new cancer, a fast growing cancer, and were to give it a blood vessel, right, that, that cancer could go from very small, very low damage, you know, perhaps it would have been taken care of by the immune system, but it could be given the nutrients to overwhelm the immune system and go into a deadly version very quickly. You may also see with the new blood vessel growth from the activation of these two receptors, you may also see something like a, a cancer that was in remission uh, suddenly have access to new blood, to new nutrients, because it now has a new vessel going to it and go from being in remission to deadly very quickly. And so these are predictions that I was talking about with doctors at, at spring of last year based off of this pathway, like what would you maybe expect to see? And I feel like that has been borne out more or less. Um, of course, it needs to be studied and there, there are confounding factors, but I yeah, feel like it's at least not, it's not not been borne out, right? It's Yeah, and there was a, a paucity of cancers um, starting in 2020, the number of cancers went down. And of course, you know, um, most of that is likely a lack of screening you know, people were staying home from the hospital. Um, and now we've seen a resurgence in, in you know, cancer identifications. Um, but it, there's a bit of a debate as to how much of that is just like a pullback effect or a pull, a pull forward effect uh, of the number of cases. And, um, and and I think that the argument is convincing that, that the trend of cancer was going up a little bit, well, you know, as age was going up and, and, and but possibly other environmental factors. And that, um, you know, it, it's hard to, well, it, I, I think that it is likely that not um, all cancers uh, are on the rise since the beginning of the pandemic. There's this debate over, you know, could SARS-CoV-2 cause more cancers? Could, um, could the vaccines cause more cancers? And I think that, uh, that you know, yeah, cancers that are in remission are sort of the low-hanging fruit. And I've heard that more often than anything else, that and soft tissue cancers. There are people who believe that's associated with the vaccines, um, but it, you know, could it be associated with the, the spike protein in general? Um, I, I don't think we know, you know, the best answers to this question yet, but, but this seems like a, a really um, plausible model worth exploring. So hopefully, um, hopefully someone will explore and hopefully it'll bear fruit. It seems like the kind of thing that research dollars should should you know move into uh, and i wish jessica were here because um when i when i talked with her about this um she she had uh you know instant uh, uh you know understanding certainly far greater than i do uh, of the age range pathway um she started talking about it immediately and and uh, i was hoping she'd be here to ask some questions but i think she's having technical difficulties so um i don't think we're gonna have her for the conversation um well moving on um so this, uh, this dimerization that occurs, so help me understand this because I, I don't yet. Um, how much, 
so what what causes the dimerization or what causes it to happen in excess quantity? Right. So this happens. So dimerization happens naturally. This is a stochastic thing. Um, and so if they're there, you know, there's a chance that they're going to bind together. Um, it actually may be a it may be a function as in part of how the angiotensin one receptor does its normal job as we think of it. Uh, for instance, in the papers where they discuss this, this process, they actually use a rage knockout model um, where they take this uh, it's genetically modified to not have the rage receptor. Um, and so in those cases, this is a, I believe this was done in a cell model, this particular experiment, but in those cases, they had uh, they did not see the normal inflammatory effects of angiotensin one receptor. So this would be big if it continues to be borne out. Is that most of what we you know, this this is assuming that most of what we expect to have happened, you know, most of the inflammatory effect that we see from the angiotensin one receptor could actually be um, done via its its dimerization, its 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 co-housing with the rage receptor. Um, that's another, I think, a good, an important thing that I need to mention here is that a lot of the research that's done with the rage receptor actually uses um, a version of it that we see. So when you do a research with the rage receptor and you do a knockout model, uh, most of the, a very common one, I'll say, this is as far as I can go, a very common model for the rage knockout is actually not a knockout, meaning it's not gone entirely. Instead of what they do is they have cut off this outside, the big three circles on the outside, they basically cut that off. And so there's no way for rage to be activated in theory because it's missing the piece that it would bind to the little, the bits on the outside. It's missing this ligand binding domain. It's missing this little mouth and the three circles that go with it, but it's still got the transmembrane and the, the cytoplasmic tail, the inside piece. But the study by Pickering et al. in uh, 2020 showed that actually, even with that piece gone, the angiotensin 2 binding to angiotensin 1 receptor can activate the, uh, the, side of the rage pathway, even with the outside piece completely gone. And so it's a question about, there's a question about how much of the research we know about age rage, how much... Um, how is that going to affect it? Like how, how much of what we know or think we know about angiotensin, angiotensin one uh, receptor, angiotensin two receptor one, the inflammation and, and the function of that, how much of it is requires the rage pathway? Cause we didn't know prior to 2020 that these dimerized. And I think that's a very, that's a very interesting question. That's not, that's not yet been answered. Okay. So doing, so we have these, these comorbidities, we have, um, we have people for whom the age rage pathway, uh, pathway is uh, dysregulated to some degree. Now, do we know how much that would occur in just the general hospital population? Like, in other words, if we just uh, if we measured these things for people who are coming in for other respiratory infections in other years, whether it's influenza or coronavirus or rhinovirus or anything else, do we see a similar set of, of like, you know, elevated comorbidities. I would say you probably would because what would, what the outcome of, of inflammation is the problem. So the, the best thing about this hypothesis is also one of the, 
parts that make it hard to confirm that this is exactly what's going on is the fact that age rage, rage is everywhere. Um, inflammation is associated with every disease, right? Everything that you can think of is, is made worse by inflammation, right? So if I've got inflammation and oxidative stress going on, then I have more DNA damage, right? I've got um, my, my proteins or my mitochondria are less functional there. There's issues. And so really the people who have poor health are, well, they have poor health, right? If you have poor health, if, you have, if you're obese and you don't exercise and you've got diabetes and heart disease, it's not just those things that are wrong with you. It's, it's your whole body is dysfunctional at that point. And okay. So if I could stop you there, then um, suppose I throw out another hypothesis that, that this isn't due to the spike protein that it might be due to some other part of coronavirus and that it does already, that it was already going on just, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, just that um, um, we didn't see as many people, uh, it, uh, the common cold. Uh, I can't remember what proportion of the common cold we think is caused by coronavirus. Of course, you know, you, you can you can kind of suggest a number, but it's, it's probably not going to be right. But I've seen numbers like 20% and 40%. So, you know, let's call it in that ballpark. You know, let's call it 30%. Maybe 30% of common colds are caused by coronaviruses. Um, maybe some proportion of, of those, you know, that have a certain amount of inflammation. And maybe some of those people don't go to the hospital. Perhaps when a pandemic is announced, they're a little bit more panicked. Perhaps uh, uh, they're, they're psychologically pushed. Um, kind of like a, uh, would you call that a nocebo effect? Um, so, you know, they're, they're more panicked than usual. So they go to the hospital before they normally would have, but some of them are going to the hospital anyway, because they're elderly. Um, so is it, is it reasonably plausible that it's not the spike protein, that it's just coronaviruses in general, or some part of the coronavirus swarm that, that, um, you know, other aspects of the coronavirus that may be causing this? Well, I think that, 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 like I said, it's not, it's definitely true that the people who have more have poor health and more inflammation, these people are going to be in the hospital disproportionately more often than people who have better health, right? But one of the things that's missing in, in that analysis and that question, uh, situation you've described, is the fact that it's because the spike protein targets ACE2, downregulates ACE2, that's why angiotensin is, is increased even more than otherwise might be. So if I've got chronic kidney disease, if I've got chronic high blood pressure, if I've got heart disease, then I've got increased angiotensin two levels, right? But there's a difference between I have background levels of increased angiotensin two, and I'm getting a sudden spike in angiotensin two because of essentially blocking the thing that would not only does the ACE2 receptor take the angiotensin 2 that's there and cut it, change it into angiotensin 1-7 so that it can't activate its normal receptor, agent AT1R, and cause inflammation, but the actual angiotensin 1-7 that the angiotensin 2 turns into is the counter effect of angiotensin 2. It is the dilation and relaxation. Its entire job is to counteract angiotensin 2. So not only am I missing the thing that would that would get rid of this angiotensin 2, but I'm no longer making the thing that actually counteracts it. 
So this is not just, yes, people with more inflammation with poorer health are gonna be in the hospital more often, but this is instead, this is, um, this is you're taking away not only the way to get rid of this excess angiotensin two, but also the thing that counteracts the function of angiotensin two. And so you it's know, when just you just said angiotensin, uh, sorry, apologies. Uh, when you just said angiotensin one seven, I just realized that's why I, I, um, I, I mixed up the interleukins. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this is why we should have Jessica here. I, I wish you were here because I, I'm not going to be able to ask questions as well as she could. Um, but uh, so uh, other respiratory viruses then, which ones of those do we know interact with ACE2? Um, so I'll say that I'm not a virologist. So the other respiratory viruses, if they bind to ACE2, I'm not as aware of. I do know that SARS-1 does, right? It also binds to ACE2 via the spike protein. And most of what I found very interesting over the past year or two that we've discovered about SARS-2 actually was previously known about SARS-1 in 2005, 2009, 2010, you know, after in the years after the SARS outbreak, they studied the virus and the effects of the protein, spike protein. And uh, I think it's, I think a lot of what we've talked about is pieces of, of information that have been rediscovered because nobody cared about a, a virus that presumably had gone extinct, or they, they stopped paying attention to it. And so if you go back and look at some of the papers, the, the inflammatory effects of it are, are well described. Uh, the different outcomes that would happen were you to be infected or, or dosed, for instance, with SARS-1 spike, you know, those were described. You know, the question, the issue is, is that number one, SARS-2 spike is much better at binding with the ACE2 receptor. And so it has a much, it does a much cleaner job of, of downregulating it. Um, I but, just did a uh, quick search because I, I'm, I'm already curious as to, you know, um, how commonly, you know, uh, virus, and, and I know I've seen a few articles about, um, you know, other viruses, respiratory viruses in particular, um, uh, interacting with ACE2. And, um, and, and in fact, you know, I think this author, I think I recognize this author from, mm, from uh, more recent research on SARS-CoV-2. I'm going to go check that out later, but I, I just wanted to bring that up, up just out of curiosity because um, yeah, there, there are some people who think that, um, that maybe this virus isn't so different or that uh, the differences are, that the, that the effects that it had that were different than usual might be a smaller proportion of people in general and that perhaps... Um, um, perhaps lack of appropriate care is ultimately uh, the reason why this looked more different. Though, I, you know, I, I, I've been curious, you know, if I could find data on differences in the amount of ground glass opacity, because that to me is, is this one signal that I've heard about that I don't necessarily know how much it occurred in the past. And, and so when I think through uh, a model like yours, I'm looking for these signals. I'm looking for enough evidence um, to say, you know, it's this or it's that. Well, I'll say that one of the things that I like most about this, right, the reason why I think it, it's it's a powerful hypothesis, a powerful model of, of disease, is 
well, among other things, it explains the comorbidities, right? It explains people who have diabetes or who are obese will have more rage receptors. And so they're more available and around to bind to AD1R uh, in order to cause this. Also, um, <clears throat> sorry. Boy, I lost what I was gonna say. Oh, it also, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually conflict with most of the other hypotheses that I've seen. Like, so this could be, we know this is occurring in some, at some level. The question is how much of the damage is being caused by this, right? Because it definitely is happening. The question is how much, what of the damage that's occurring from people with SARS-CoV-2 and some of the severe adverse events, how much of it is due to this pathway? So that's that's the question, not whether it's occurring, but how much of it is, is occurring. Yeah, I sort of and wonder what so you it, have is. It, 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 what I think is very important here is that this, almost none of the other hypotheses for damages uh, are mutually exclusive with this one. And so we can talk about which hypothesis is mutually exclusive, but most of them, you know, you could say, oh, you know, there's toxicity from um, lipid nanoparticles. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't conflate, this doesn't uh, interfere with this hypothesis. This hypothesis could be just as true or a big piece of the puzzle and uh, the lipid nanoparticles could be, could be toxic. It could be um, immune cells attacking healthy cells could be an issue. And that also would not conflate with or conflict with this hypothesis. And so, you know, part of, I think the power here is that this hypothesis does not necessarily exclude many of the other ones. Right. And, and I, I was going to say maybe broader in another sense, because, um, you know, immediately when I think about, um, you know, ACE2 and how much I've seen how in, in research, not that I'm an expert in any way at all, but it, it makes me wonder if, if what you're doing is really um, creating a test that might be done where we say, you know, how much dimerization is going on between all the different, you know, respiratory illnesses. Maybe we should be checking that out with, uh, you know, different influences. Maybe we should be checking that out with different um, you know, uh, RSV or, or other other viruses. Maybe we should always be checking that out, and we should have some sense of then um, how it is that we might quell symptoms or you know treat individuals or or coach people who who you know might be more susceptible to the harms uh, of getting these viruses. And, and also maybe just you know teach young people. Look, this is what happens if you don't run around and and eat good food, right? That, that's what we yeah. want young people to get in the habit of doing. Excuse me, uh, someone's at the door just now. Can you give me just a second? Okay. Um, well, uh, while Cody's uh, answering the door, um, I'll just kind of riff on that. You know, ultimately there's so much about biology that we just don't know. You know, there's so many, um, there's so many moving parts and there's so many different ways that they could interact. Um, you know, if you think about uh, eight things, um, influenza is a segmented virus. Maybe it has like nine segments and those segments permute around. Um, there are then 362,880 different ways to rearrange. And maybe not all of those make a functioning influenza virus, but there's still, there's a lot. There's a lot of different ways that you can move those segments around and make uh, and make influenza. 
So when you think about just that number of interactions, the combinatorial explosion of all the things going on in your body, there's still so much to study. You know, people who think that we're anywhere close to like, you know, figuring out the human machine or something like that. I always just kind of laugh at that. Um, you know, the, the the complexity of biological systems is just enormous. There, you know, there's so much work, but we, we try to focus in on those things which might be, that we might be able to get the best handle on, right? Those things that uh, seem to be most important. Those are the ones that we've studied most and, and continue to study most. And every now and then we're identifying a new thing which is important in, in some particular way. Um, my wife uh, studies um, uh, the P53 pathway, which is the pathway associated most often with cancer. And we're still learning a whole lot about that pathway. Um, and, you know, there, there's just enormous amounts to learn. So, um, well, uh, Cody, um, thank you for, for sharing your theory with us or your model with us. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I hope that this is something that gets studied. Uh, maybe you'll participate in that research at some point in the future. Um, do you have any, uh, can you wrap things up for us um, uh, before we uh, call it a day here? Sure, sure. So I guess the final words that I would say is, um, I think this is a very powerful hypothesis because it there's a lot of explaining that it can do. And it shows us something like, gives us information about why, who would we expect to get the most ill with this? We would expect it to happen in old people. We expect it to happen in people who have chronic kidney disease, heart disease, neurogenerative disease. Um, you know, we've seen, there's research on rage interfering with the blood brain barrier. Uh, we would expect heart damage, endothelial scarring, damage in the, in the blood vessels. Um, you know, it, I feel like it's very powerful um, and it's also very subtle. So it's something that would easily be missed. There's, like I said, there's only two papers that talk about this connection. And while I did develop this hypothesis independently, I'm not the first person or only person to say something about this. It's just that people will publish, you know, a very short hypothesis article and then, or leave it in a, in a small paragraph of a review paper and then never do anything with it. And I kept kind of waiting for people to pick up on this because people will say, you know, oh, it must be this mechanism or oh, it must be that. And people seem to struggle with the breadth of disorder that comes from SARS-CoV-2 infection, comes from uh, vaccine adverse events. And I think that if you look at this pathway and look at the, the breadth of the pathway, it, suddenly it makes perfect sense why you could see something like uh, increased risk of diabetes after COVID infection, right? because you're taking this pathway that already is kind of going and these people it's the, the pre-diabetic or something their pathways are going haywire and you're just pushing it over the edge and, and so, so would, would viral load affect this yeah right so viral viral load would affect it right because the more spike protein the more it's blocking your ace2 the more it's uh the more it's you know, causing an increase in angiotensin two, the more this pathway is activated. And if, when I get the Substack post out, you know, there'll be some diagrams that are carefully drawn to try to show this. Um, I encourage people to check that out. Um, but, right, but also something else that would, that would affect this is, for instance, it's not clear how much spike protein you get from a vaccination. Right? It's, it's, it's variable between people and between times. 
So you could think of it not only as, as an aspect of viral load, but how much spike protein is there. And so it could be from either virus or, or um, inocula, uh, trans, transfection. And so this is something that could be variable. And that is, I think, a very powerful part of it is that, you know, I could have, you know, 100 people who all had the same exact genetics, the same exact comorbidities, and I could give them spike protein, the, let's say we give them COVID or the vaccine. And depending on how well the, the virus happened to live in their body, or depending on how much spike protein was made from transfection, they could have different outcomes from this. Um, oh, one thing I want to mention is that there are some, there are some people who are doing studies that are not exactly what needs to be done to talk about this actual mechanism. But for instance, there's work done on um, angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors. Uh, last time I spoke with a, a doctor, you know, she said, well, what, your hypothesis suggests that people who have uh, ACE inhibitors or receptor blockers, angiotensin receptor blockers would have a better outcome. Um, I haven't seen, I know there are clinical trials going on about that, but I haven't seen results. Uh, I have seen some papers that tried to look at population levels, especially there was one I read in veterans that showed, uh, I think it was actually a slightly worse outcome, which would be evidence against my hypothesis. But what we're looking at was people who are veterans or something like that for this kind of a study. It's not very well controlled because these people could have, could very likely have, you know, much poorer health than the average population. And so what we would like, what I would like to have among other things are studies that show, um, just studies that take healthy people and look at the effect of, of this pathway using something like angiotensin receptor blockers or ACE inhibitors. Um, but that's not, it's not very easy of course to do studies on, on humans. Uh, and this is why we really need we really need an increased level of of basic science research. We need mouse models and and we need to take these mouse models and, and understand the role that these receptors play in patho pathogenesis of COVID. Well, Cody, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for sharing your model. And uh, when you get your Substack up, we'll come we'll come link it to this video and um, and in an article that. Um, I, you know, I, I put out an article with uh, each video typically, and uh, and I want to think through this myself, and um, and and maybe discuss it with uh, some some biologists. And uh, if I hear um, if I hear from anybody who has uh, really good thoughts on it, I'll I'll forward them to you. Excellent, thank you. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us for um, for another uh, conversation at Rounding the Earth. Um, we have um, you know, an interesting uh, model here, an interesting theory on how uh, damage could be going on. And, and I really do, you know, when I look at this, I think this, this might be broader than SARS-CoV-2, but it may, it may relate more to SARS-CoV-2 than other things. But if it does relate to the spike protein, then it could relate to vaccine injury to a degree. Um, I, I, it may be that we're seeing um, a, a broader array of, of vaccine injuries uh, from what I hear, but uh, it, could, it could certainly explain some of them. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow for uh, tomorrow's roundtable. And um, tomorrow's roundtable is going to be an interesting one. Uh, it's a little bit different than usual. We're going to discuss uh, perhaps the way um, human speciation might occur 
due to uh, specialization and socialization. Take care, everybody. Thank you.